All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is the um, uh, excuse me the intro for episode eighty nine. Jason Lindgren is with me, and we're going to be talking about the Disney Corporation. Um, the Disney Corporation is part and parcel of so many lives, uh, at least in the part of the world where I live in. When I was young, uh, there was a show called The Wonderful World of Disney. I think if I remember correctly, it came on for Sunday nights. I believe it was an hour. Not sure I have that right. Maybe even t- there were times when it was specials and it was longer. And it was something that everyone stopped what they were doing to go catch. It was in black and white at first. And when the color finally came, it was a big deal for everybody. Um, the corporation of Disney has been in every household in, in uh, this part of the world that I'm in. And actually, I've been to Mexico. I see the same thing there. I've been in Canada. Uh, I see the same thing there. But what's astonishing is I think few people have any idea of what a mega corporation Disney actually is. And we mentioned this later, but anyone go to Wiki and look at Disney Holdings. Jason and I were going to outline some of them. I don't think we could outline it just the holdings alone in the first hour. That's how big it is. And, you know, as Jason and I got into this, we began to ask each other, you know, at what point does a corporation become so big uh, that government no longer matters? And we pretty quickly came to the conclusion that that question was probably answered many, many, many years ago. And that sets aside the fact that the United States itself is a corporation. In these times, with these mega corporations controlling all information sources that matter, um, it's going to be equally as important to protect your free speech and to have freedom of expression as it is to demand access to information. Even as we got into this episode, as we will mention, digging up information uh, to do this episode was, was difficult. It gets more difficult with every week or month that passes. Um, I've had conversations with friends around the search returns for Crow Triple Seven Radio. Uh, we talk a little bit about that and the whole satellite idea. If you go right now, and this is mentioned in the episode, I think, if I remember correctly, we recorded yesterday, uh, you'll be told that there's roughly 2,700 satellites. Well, it was two or three years ago when the numbers being bandied about were somewhere between 15,000 and 30,000 satellites. Now, there are actually videos circulating on the web that were made by official sources designed to convince us that pretty soon we will not be able to go to space at all because of the amount of radioactive space junk. I kid you not. Anyhow, this is quite an episode, and the reason it's quite an episode is because I doubt there are a few places in this world that will access this podcast that have not had directly to do with the corporation Disney, its movie, its information systems, and the litany of other sub-corporations and subsidiaries that it owns. As a matter of fact, if you go on Wiki and look up the what they call shuttered corporations Disney owns, I don't even think we could get through that list in 30 minutes. I really don't. Anyhow, let's jump in with Jason Lindgren. This is an interesting episode, and by the time we get to the second hour, we really catch our stride, and the truth is, while we do not censor first-hour content, we address a lot of things that we're not going to address in the first hour, in the second hour. I hope to see you all over there at Crow777Radio.com. Anyhow, let's jump in. Cheers. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio Podcast. This is episode 89. Uh, Jason Lindgren is with me, and we are going to be covering Disney. Um, it's quite a thing, and both Jason and I had the same experience as we were doing the research. It is getting more difficult with each passing week uh, to do research in the way we want to. For my part, I even had to resort, resort to old books and printed materials that I had around. It's just simply not easy. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. From the frozen East Coast, we both come to you. Yeah, it's going to be. They're saying we're getting a blizzard tomorrow. Um, I'm not sure. I guess I I better put out something today. Um, maybe I'll try to let people know that if I don't get the episode up tomorrow, uh, it's because we're in blizzard conditions. But who the heck knows, man? They claim stuff all the time. I just kind of wait to see if it gets here. But there is no doubt the majority of this country is frozen right now. Very strange. Oh, we've had a hard freeze here. My pipes froze the other night, so it's uh, it's even bad in southern Louisiana. Yeah, it's crazy. All the way down to the border with Mexico, I've seen some reports that it's gotten cold. Just not not usual weather, I would say. Anyhow, Jason, 
Uh, let me get a couple things out of the way, or at least one thing out of the way, before we jump into the Disney episode, which should be very interesting. Um, after all, Disney represents, in my view, the kind of consolidation of corporation. Uh, if I had to boil it down to basics, um, it, it is that in spades. Anyone can go out and do a wiki search to see the holdings of uh, what Disney owns and even its shuttered businesses. And when I did this, I actually sent an email to Jason stating that uh, I don't think we could cover in the first hour the holdings that Disney has. And it would probably take a good 30 minutes or more just to cover the shuttered businesses. But anyhow, uh, I just did finally got with Greg Carlwood and did the episode. Uh, Greg told me that it will run on higher side chats. I think he told me the first episode of the year. So that will be coming shortly. And I can't think of anything else to cover before we jump in. Can you, Jason? No, just the usual, hey, let's get Crow out there. We got to be able to get him to get on Google search hits. When people search for him, things need to come up. And as we are having a conversation off the air, it seems that the them playing around with the YouTube channel and, and goodness knows what else out there, they're scrubbing his name from hit results of people are looking. So we need to fight back against that. We need to get you to start coming up again. Well, it's not really arguable either, either, so I guess I will cover this before we jump in. Um, before my YouTube channel was killed, if I did a search for Crow 777, I got hundreds of thousands of returns. Now when I do it, I get about 61,000. I haven't done it in a day or two, but here's the rub. I have friends all over the world. I have friends that are let's just say very keen computer users. And what we did is we did a test searching for different search terms that relate to Crow 777 around the world. Uh, we did a search in Germany uh, for Lunar Wave and got, I think it was 16 million returns. If we added Crow 777 to Lunar Wave, it went down to 21,000. And this sets aside all the other things that we learned. Geographically, we did the searches uh, that are similar to what I just described to you. And the variance in the number of hits from any given place shows what's happened here. Apparently, when the YouTube channel got taken out, um, something like DNS servers, or that's not a good description, but the name Crow 777 was scrubbed from searches. Um, and they've been drastically reduced. But geography is playing a huge role here. Depending where you are in the world, if you do search returns, you get big varying differences. And the idea that you can do a lunar wave search and get 16 million returns, which incidentally used to be a hell of a lot higher before the channel was taken out, um, and then add Crow 777 to it and have it drop so drastically is beyond the pale. But, you know, this is, this is what we're facing. The censorship in the age that we now exist is crucial on a few levels. It's not just that people are going to have to stand up to speak freely and to talk about what they want to talk about and express themselves without interference. This has just as much to do with the information we can search and get back, which I open talking about. But anyhow, Jason, we'll probably cover, maybe we'll do an episode uh, where we actually lay down flat out statistics of the stuff that I've learned with friends of mine all over the place looking into this. But how about we uh, we jump into Disney proper here? All right. So Walter Elias Disney. Here's the mainstream write-up on him. He was born in Chicago on December 5th, 1901. He was an American entrepreneur, animator, voice actor, and film producer. A pioneer of the American animation industry, he introduced several developments in the production of cartoons. As a film producer, Disney holds the record for most Academy Awards earned by an individual, having won 22 Oscars from 59 nominations. He was presented with two Golden Globe Special Achievement Awards and an Emmy Award, among other honors. Several of his films are included in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. He passed away at the age of 65 in Burbank, California, on December 15th, 1966. So there's a lot going on here. You know, this is one of those cases where you and I are going to use the historical record as a basis to speak. But I guess we we might as well say again, history is a lie agreed upon. And I know in your research, you found a lot of things that you didn't feel like you could really corroborate. But let's take a quick look here. The man was born in 1901. Let me count the ways, having won 22 Oscars, which is another key number. Uh, that's the ma master builder's number. Um, and he passes away at 65, which comes to 11. We've talked so much about how the forces that be in this world will never let an 11 or a 9 go to waste. But anyhow, I'll let you keep pushing, Jason. So it's interesting trying to find information on him. There, were, There's lots of accusations about him. 
and multiple researchers come at it from different ways. So all of this take with a grain of sand. I can only report here what I found and very hard to find any solid evidence. Well, let, let's put it. Let's put a framework around that. There is a there there. It's difficult to do searches in the way that we used to uh, not too long ago to get to the information that we're after. But when you consider things like um, not too long ago, I, I, shoot, I've, I read so much over the past few days. There was one of the cartoon kids cartoons. I don't know if it was Little Mermaid. I've forgotten where there was a penis drawn into the castle for the cover art that was released to the public. Yeah, Little Mermaid. Right. These things tell you the tale. They're undeniable. It happened. The excuses that were made that it was some bad artist or these other things are nonsensical. And for someone who hasn't worked uh, in the places I will, I'll tell you why. I've worked in places where there's an art director. These art directors are highly trained. They know it all. And not only do they know it all, when they review what artists have made to go out to publication, the, the level of scrutiny that is given any given design, particularly at a corporation of that size, is unreal. Um, I mean, you're talking about going in and coloring, changing the shades of color um, by minuscule amounts that the average person would never even detect, using the rule of thirds, finding out where the focal point, it goes on and on and on. And the idea that something like that could have been made in the Disney art studios and that the art directors and the people in charge wouldn't have caught is ludicrous. And that's not the only example. In the animated feature films, you know, they can show where smoke has turned into the word sex. It goes on. On and on and on, and we may touch on this later, but just to put a fine point on it, when you understand these things happened, it tells you something critical about what you're looking at, and it's undeniable in my view. Anyhow, Jason. There are multiple researchers who suggest that Walt and his older brother Roy were not the children of their father's wife, but another woman whom he had an affair with, which of course makes them bastard children. Now, I was unable to find any solid proof of this, but there are a lot of theories floating about regarding this situation. A lot of it seems to stem from the notion that Walt lied about his age when he tried to join the service during World War One, and there's no birth certificate to be found enabling him to lie about his age. Now, again, I couldn't prove that 100%, but I saw that repeated in multiple places, so I'm not sure how they would know that, especially considering how early in the 20th century that would be. But there you go. Right. So I think in, in what was it, the, the Census Bureau, uh, I think we've covered in past episodes, had to do with switching over from writing names and Bibles to issuing birth certificates. But the truth is, most of us in this world have a birth certificate. Um, I suppose if you're getting back to the early 1900s, uh, maybe there are people who don't have them. The problem is, is that the amount of time it takes to try to confirm this becomes prohibitive when you're trying to produce as much content as Jason and I are. But I would point out that if, in fact, there is no birth certificate, that's kind of a telling thing. Anyhow, Jason. So this I took right off of the order of the Demolay's website. Disney was initiated into Mother Chapter Demolay in Kansas City, Missouri in 1920. He received a Legion of Honor in 1931. Disney was a member of the first class to be inducted into the Demolay Hall of Fame on November 13, 1986. I feel a great sense of obligation and gratitude toward the Order of Demolay for the important part it played in my life. Its precepts have been invaluable in making decisions, facing dilemmas, and crises. Demolay stands for all that is good for the family and for our country. I feel privileged to have enjoyed membership in Demolay. Now, if anyone out there doesn't know what Demolay is, that's sort of the Freemasonry for teens kind of thing. Family members might get their son involved in it, that sort of thing. So there's ties to him to Freemasonry. This is the only direct one I could find. So when you start to get back into the early 1900s, what you will find in any given big, any given big city is that a heck of a lot of people uh, were in Elks Clubs kind of things, um, masonry, these other types of things. So many people that were in unionized work uh, would have been members of lodges. So it's tough to go at this in any meaningful way, but it does show that while later uh, it's hard to find actual statements saying that he was a Freemason, we all know that there's a 33 club in Disneyland, at least the one that I've been to in California in Anaheim. But I would point out that he joins the Demolay in 1920, 11 years later, being awarded the Legion of Honor. Anyhow, Jason. Now, it is also said that Walt Disney was a member of the secret society, the ancient mystical order Rosé Crucius, 
which is also known as the Rosicrucians. In this organization, he is said to have completed all of the teachings that the order provided. There are also many who believe he was a secret 33rd degree Freemason, although I couldn't find any direct link to that specifically. Well, you know, whether or not we can absolutely go in and confirm these things and the things you have just stated, we, we, we're pretty certain that they did occur. Um, it doesn't take a genius to go back and look at things like Fantasia. Uh, when I was very young, Fantasia was a big deal, man. Whenever it came to the theaters, all the families were going out to see it. And I would invite anyone, go back and take a close look at, uh, at Fantasia. Um, it's kind of surprising. If, if something like that was produced now and released, I think there would be a wholly different reaction uh, than what happened back in the day when Disney was first making all these huge Technicolor feature films that everyone was crazy for. Um, go back and look at it. Uh, there is a very dark undertone uh, to that movie for anyone who scrutinizes it. Now, Walt Disney began working on commercial illustrations in 1919 and moved into animations in the 1920s, having some marginal success with what were known as Newman's Laughograms. He moved on with something called Alice's Wonderland, multiple features of this, which was a combination of live action and animation and were actually quite impressive for the early 1920s. He moved to Hollywood in 1923 and founded a company that would eventually become Walt Disney Productions, and finally, as of today, the Walt Disney Company, which these days normally just gets abbreviated to Disney. This along with three other companies, Walt Disney Enterprises, Disney Film Recording Company, and Lilith Realty and Investment Company. These companies involved both Walt and his older brother, Roy, who would always be a part of what Walt did, but on the financial side, not on the creative side. Now, the only thing I find really confusing about that when I pulled that off of an official timeline of, of Disney is what was going on that he needed all these companies right from the get-go before he's even a huge name. Well, we're looking at clockwork in my view here, Jason. The man was born... Uh in 1901, Let Me Count the Ways, and he begins his illustrations in 1919, Count the Ways. Um, these appear on the face of it, if you're just to take apart the dates, to, to be playing the long game, the clockwork, almost like players come to the stage when they're supposed to be there on time, arriving when they need to, to play the role that will come. Um, that's my point of view. The problem with saying things like this in a public forum is so many questions come on the tail of a statement like that, and so many of them we simply cannot answer. The problem here becomes that we can't deny it any longer. We've examined long enough and looked long enough and understand enough at this point to make statements like I just did. But again, uh, we wish we knew so much more, Jason. Absolutely. Now, the creation of the character and icon of Mickey Mouse. Originally named Mortimer, which official history says didn't fly with Walt's wife, so she suggested the name Mickey instead, this character was created to replace a former character that Walt Disney worked on named Oswald, but he didn't hold the copyrights to. No one seems certain what the actual inspiration for Mickey Mouse was, but there's been multiple suggestions that it came from this or that, but there is no one official story. Mickey Mouse first appeared in May 1928 as a single test screening of the cartoon short Plain Crazy, but this one, along with a second called The Gallopin' Gaucho, failed to find any distribution. Following the 1927 full-length musical feature film The Jazz Singer that used fully synchronized sound, which was a big deal for the time, this is when they started being called talkies, Disney was convinced he must use synchronized sound for the third animated short Steamboat Willie, this was one of the first post-produced sound cartoons that actually kept everything in sync properly. After animation was completed, Walt Disney signed a contract with the former executive of Universal Pictures, Pat Powers, to use what was called the Powers Cinephone Recording System. This Cinephone became the new distributor for Disney's early sound cartoons, which soon became quite popular. Yeah, so here again, Jason, almost every major start date you've mentioned, uh, we can count the ways, hint, 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 1928, let's count the ways. You know, from the very get-go in certain things, well, I will also mention that this happens right near the the uh, spring, spring equinox in May, uh, when many of the major endeavors in this world occur, following probably the alchemical ideas when all important alchemical traditions must start at the equinox or the spring equinox. But uh, to follow this through, 
it's crazy at so many of the timelines we look at how quickly and at such a young tender age so many of these people are hooked in and already we see here um, he's hooking in with the the big uh, universal pictures of the time um, I don't know what would you add man about the you know here here we are at the very beginning of Steamboat Willie so many people you can go online on YouTube and look at the original Steamboat Willie now but what would you add Jason well, the next bullet point is really going to say it all because this whole thing seems very like a setup almost because here it is. It's interesting to note that Walt Disney and company must have had some serious connections already at this point in 1928 because on November 18th, 1928, Steamboat Willie's premiere was in a small independent theater without any advanced promotion or any sort of advertisement. The animated film was distributed by Celebrity Productions, and its initial run lasted two weeks. Disney was paid $500 a week, which was considered quite a large amount for the time. you got to figure this is the 1920s. It played ahead of an independent feature film called Gang War. Steamboat Willie was called an immediate hit, while Gang War could be said to be all but forgotten today. I've certainly never heard of it. However, very oddly regarding Steamboat Willie, the New York Times, Variety, and Exhibitors Herald all ran rave reviews of this unadvertised animated short the very next day. So it seems quite unlikely that members from all three of these big media companies were present in the theater. So how did they know about it? Right. There it is. You're looking at the planned wheel doing its turn, in my view. And again, Jason, I hate to keep playing the same old harp strings here, but 1928, let me count the ways. This is the day that Steamboat Willie first airs, and then we have November 18. Uh, that encodes a couple things, the triple six, and let me count the ways. Of course, we get nines, and the month of November is 11. Um, it never ends. Every major date, and I don't think, uh, I'll ask you, were you thinking about this as you pulled these dates, or did all these things I've just said, is that mutually exclusive from what how you collected them? Well, I mean, I certainly took note of all the dates, and at the very end of the notes, if you got through them, I put the exact release dates that are officially marked for every animated film that Disney has put out, from Snow White all the way up to today, and there's quite a few of them that seem to be around solstices and equinoxes and things. Right. So, you know, it'd be an interesting study at some point for us to look at some of the major media, film, these kinds of things, where production on them was begun in March or near March uh, in the vicinity of the spring equinox, and then the end product is delivered uh, during the fall of the power of the sun, in this case down in November, uh, scantily a month away from the low point of the sun. Uh, there's something to all this. We've seen the pattern enough times, and every single date you've thrown out here, uh, I have been able to say, let me count the ways, and come on, at some point that becomes more than coincidence, even for the most skeptical mind. Anyhow, man, back to you. Another interesting point about Steamboat Willie is that it has been at the center of a variety of controversies regarding copyright. The copyright of this animated short has been extended by an act of the United States Congress. However, recent evidence suggests that the film may actually already be in the public domain owing to technicalities related to the original copyright notice. The film has been the center of some attention regarding the 1998 Copyright Term Extension Act passed in the United States. Steamboat Willie has been close to entering the public domain in the U.S. several times. Each time, copyright protection has been extended. It could have entered public domain in four different years. First in 1956, renewed in 84, then to 2003 by the Copyright Act of 1976, and finally to the current public domain date of 2023 by the Copyright Term Extension Act, which people called the Mickey Mouse Protection Act of 1998. The U.S. copyright on Steamboat Willie will be in effect through 2023 unless there is yet another extension of the law. There have been many claims that these extensions were a response by Congress to extensive lobbying made by the Walt Disney Company. I mean, they don't have any money or power to do that, do they, Crow? No, I don't think so. They're just average people on the street. After all, uh, all the rest of us out here in the world with a copyright, when the copyright expires, it expires, right? To be fair, there have been other changes uh, where there have been things like trying to make a copyright last uh, for the length of the artist's life. But when you get into the, the actual factual record-based ideas that Congress got involved and actually a name, a nickname was attributed as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, you're being told something here. Um, so it's hard to, you know, I started to break it down, even looking at the dates, 56, there you go, let, let me count the ways, 1984, of course. 
course, so much attributed to that, and we skip one 2003 goal back up to 1976. If I'm not mistaken, that was the bicentennial of this country, so that's another kind of standout this year. But my point being here, why would they make so much effort um, to to extend the copyright here? Is it simply that Walt Disney Company is powerful and they're exerting pressure here, or is there something more to it? Hard thing to know, Jason. Well, I'm kind of curious what that actually would mean. If Steamboat Willie goes into the public domain, does that mean that anybody can use the image of Mickey Mouse, or at least yes. Mickey Mouse as he appeared in that cartoon? Minnie Mouse was in it too, because I believe they were both created at the same time. And I assume that means if someone wanted to use that imagery as it stood in that picture, which was very different looking from today's tweaks, CGI, that kind of thing, everything looks obviously much better today. But I'm assuming that means people could use it and not get the shit suit out of them. Right. That's exactly what it means. And I can tell you, having grown up in California and even uh, when I was a roadie, uh, there were a few occasions that I actually, as a freelance roadie, was hired by a production company working for Disney to do work on Disney things. One of those was The Hunchback. I think it was, I don't know, 97, 98. I don't remember. It's been so long now. But I've actually done work around them. And anyone who lives in California in the vicinity of Anaheim understands that there were hotels around Disneyland trying to get people to stay there when they went to Disneyland trying to use the imagery, and they all got nailed. Um, even private personages have supposedly been nailed uh, for using Peter Pan or other iconic copyright images. But I, th- what this means, Jason, is that all the imagery held within Steamboat Willie could be used by anyone. In other words, people could pick it apart in a YouTube video, uh, examining it and running that content uh, without fear of copyright. But it's really... The harder I look at this, it's it's really hard to understand whether this is just business, um, them trying to protect the, the foundation of their brand, or whether there's things there that they really don't want people picking apart. Hard to know, man. Now, another interesting note that I came across over and over and over again is that the impression is given that Walt Disney himself was the key animator with all these early Disney cartoons and the films, really, too. But multiple sources say otherwise, with as early as 1927 being the year he quit animating and focused on the business aspects of his cartoons. Now, he had a public relations agent who was also, he worked for Shirley Temple as well. And I don't know at what point he started because I couldn't get an exact year, but apparently this was one of the key guys who painted this picture of Walt Disney being this perfect, squeaky clean, never swore, never drank, you know, just good little boy, and everything at Disney was just peaches and cream and wonderful, and absolutely nothing was allowed to interfere with this image. Now, there's various descriptions I found of him behind the scenes, of course, that he was sometimes volatile, and of course he did get angry, but he put on a great image that no one in his organization was allowed to, for instance, men couldn't have facial hair even though he wore a mustache, and just everything had to look the part. And all of this gets carried through his entire life as far as what he puts on as a public image. Well, I think there's little doubt. So many people can go back on TCM recently. They have a Disney vault thing where they run things, which I often record them to review them. Anyone go back and look at the early black and white things you're being shown. And clearly everyone is buttoned down with a tie. It's a different time. Uh, they're all dressing for work. But, you know, to get back to the main bullet point here, Jason, again, you know, we're, we're being told that he stopped animating in 1927. Let me count the ways yet again. Um, and I found in the accounts and remember from the things I have seen in the past that it was claimed flat out that he was an artist and that he started this whole thing doing cartoons that didn't move, moving into cartoons that did move. And again, it does seem to be obscured at this point whether or not uh, he did play a key role in the creation of some of those, you know, these iconic things that the whole world is aware of now. You know, here, here's a side note that's kind of funny. Um, I remember back in the 80s, uh, I had no, that's not true. It must have been the 90s because it was right around the time that book came out, Team Rodent, uh, which I read that was covering uh, the negative aspects of Disney. We'd gone down to Tijuana, Mexico and San Diego, and every time you go out, they have all these Disney characters. I just think it's funny because I had just read that that book, um, you know, exposing the kind of dark underbelly of Disney. And, you know, even being aware of 
private people, hotels, and other places that were sued for using the images. When you come out of Tijuana, almost every pinata you're handed is a Disney character. Um, kind of a just an ironic thing to see, knowing what we know about what happens to people on this side of the border. So obviously, Disney has had a huge impact or had a huge impact even in the the late 1920s because people already were associating him with this uh, good little boy image, I guess you could say. It's very interesting. I couldn't find anything in the mainstream press that slammed him other than a few negative reviews later on about some of the films, but very interesting. It's almost like everything around him is obfuscated and had even been from the beginning. Well, there's no doubt. He was the family man. But you see, the family he was producing into the public eye was a bit like Leave it to Beaver. It was a nonsensical version of what people supposed it was like in the 50s or even the 40s. Um, But anyone can go back and look at Leave it to Beaver, and it's just a sanitized version of nostalgia, basically. But most I remember back in the day when Disney came in on Sunday nights, it was a big deal. Everyone was there. And we'll get into that, too, um, because basically what had happened was while Disney was putting out this squeaky clean family image and rewriting basically the history of this country, so much of this country's history was rewritten by Disney in terms of how the Wild West was and Davy Crockett and all these other things. But but the truth is, is that while he was running, he had a full hour, I think, on Sunday nights. It was also an ad for Disneyland. And there were a lot of people up in arms saying, how is it possible that this man can have an hour long commercial for, you know, his commercial endeavors? But we're about to get into something which I uh, researched a heck of a lot. And it has to do with the naming of the planet Pluto. So I'll let you jump in there, Jason. Yep, I included this one specifically for you because you've already done a video on this when pictures released a few years ago regarding Pluto. February 18th, 1930, the dwarf planet Pluto is discovered at the Lowell Observatory in Flagstaff, Arizona by astronomer Clyde W. Tombaugh. The Disney character Pluto, or Pluto the Pup, first appears in September of 1930 but isn't officially Mickey's pet and named Pluto until two cartoons later in 1931. So the clip I did back in the day um, was, from my point of view, uh, you've never seen a picture of anything from space, and the idea that you've seen pictures of Pluto, I've made clips about to demonstrate that from my research and my point of view, it's all nonsense. Um, Anyone can go back and try to look up those clips on Crow 777 on YouTube. But, you know, how coincidental does a thing have to be? Uh, You know, even back in the day, we can find paper clippings of people thinking that the name of the newly discovered planet Pluto had been lifted from Disney or vice versa. Um, but what's even crazy is anyone could go look this up when when Disney was asked, you know, how did you get the name for this new character Pluto being created in the same year as the discovery of a supposed planet named Pluto? It's attributed to an 11 year old girl and apparently has nothing to do, according to them, uh, with the coincidence that is the creation of Pluto, the planet and the creation of Pluto, the Walt Disney cartoon character in the same year. Um, I have clips up on this, so I won't beat a dead horse here, but it is beyond the pale when you logically break it down. And I will say again here for the record. Well, let me say this. Um, when I first got my first eight inch telescope in the 90s, um, what was one of the amazing things back in the day is that telescope had a go-to feature like you could put in go to Pluto and it would automatically go and get you pretty close most of the time sometimes right on the money to what you were looking for Pluto is about the dimmest little star you can ever put a telescope on to the point where you're not even sure that you're looking at what you think you are looking at until you do quite a bit of work looking at charts and maps to confirm that you are in fact looking at Pluto. Um, And again, I will state for the record, you have never seen an image of anything for the space and the whole Pluto construct I address in clips on YouTube. But anyhow, back to you, Jason. Well, the thing that always jumped out at me for Pluto was that artist rendition that was put out. I I don't remember if it was the 70s or the 80s when it was released, but basically an artist concept of this is what Pluto probably looks like or something along these lines. And then you see the real pictures and it's so close, it's ridiculous. That just seems unlikely beyond all belief. Right. I cover that in the clip that I have posted on YouTube. That's the last thing that I cover. And I can't remember the guy's name, his first initial and last name initial or the same, if I remember correctly. But I think it was in the 70s. He painted an artist rendering of what Pluto might look like. And of all the infinite possibilities, when you're just simply guessing 
with no evidence other than the dimmest star in the sky, a little dim light you can see in the telescope. He paints this picture of what Pluto might look like. And of course, as we all know now, it is so damn close as to make the viewer incredulous. And that sets aside all the other work done with the, the supposed recent Pluto imagery re, uh, released by this, the space agencies, where people have even tried to show that the cartoon character Pluto is embedded in that image, among other things. Really? Like you could actually make him out, the character? A lot of people, you uh, you know, I invite anyone to go to YouTube to go do the search. A lot of people overlaid the actual cartoon character Pluto with that kind of heart-shaped smooth spot on the supposed planet Pluto, uh, which in my view is not an image of anything. It's an artist's rendering. Uh, that is my point of view. Um, you can go look these things up. And, you know, they're, it's one of these things where are we forcing a thing to look the way we want it to, or is there a there there? There does seem to be a there there, but that doesn't matter because we can pretty much demonstrate these are artist renderings in the same way we can take any image ever supposedly shot of earth from space and show that they're nothing more than artist renderings even knowing the artist's name on the last one that was done in 2002 and the statement that he made saying you know i was given data by a space agency and i designed this picture uh you know supposing what i thought the world would look like from space. These are really not arguable points for anyone who wants to dig in, and the planet Pluto is no different. But anyhow, anyone listening, go do a search for Pluto, the cartoon character, Pluto, the planet, and you'll, I'm sure, certain you'll find people uh, who are overlaying the cartoon character on the planet to try to show that it's embedded in that image. Um, I'll let anyone make up their own mind there, Jason. Now, this next point definitely demonstrates that Walt Disney had direct connections with the upper echelon of the elite. In 1934, Walt Disney is said to have met with H.G. Wells. A few months later, in November of 1935, Wells was visiting Charlie Chaplin and arranged a meeting with the three of them. All three are also said to have shared what was called a utopian dream of a world beyond racism and war. On January 12, 1936, an interview was published in the New York Times with H.G. Wells. It discussed the meeting between the three of them, and Wells stated that many do not realize that all Hollywood studios are so busy that they keep very much to themselves. Consequently, Chaplin never visited the Disney studios. Imagine Charlie and Walt Disney, those two geniuses never met. I took Charlie there. Disney has the most marvelous machinery and does the most interesting experiments. Like Chaplin, he is a good psychologist, and both do the only thing in film today that remains international. <laughs> a good psychologist. So there we get the echoings of the Tavistock work that we've done. And how many episodes, Jason, have we done where we've shown that H.G. Wells is a keystone in the circles of power? Um, the bullet points like this kind of demonstrate that all the people we remember as having been important in the entertainment industry are in a club. Uh, they all know each other. They all circle around each other. Um, here it is, just another example of the same old, same old that we have covered so many times. And, of course, H.G. Wells being on the outskirts of royal circles and to do with the Tavistock Institute. I also found information saying that Walt Disney was descended from William the Conqueror, meaning that he had what the elite would consider royal bloodline. So that's why he was allowed to get or even helped, perhaps, to get as far as he did possible, but again, very hard to prove. I wouldn't even know how to prove something like that. Well, I think it's clear that he's a special person when we look back in the way we can look back now. Um, you know, there, there's no doubt that there is connection to the circles of power there. Circles of power always include royalty. H.G. Well proves the connection once again. Um, and, you know, how many things have we attributed to Wells? But whether or not we could prove it back to a person, I don't think there's any denying uh, that they're in that kind of royal influenced circle one way or another. And it would not surprise me either, Jason, to learn that they're actually royal blood uh, whatever that means. Well, in, in 1934, 5, 6, whatever this was, H.G. Wells was at the end of his life. So all of his one world crap that he was pushing has had already been way out there. And anyone familiar with Wells would have known that this is what he was about. His big claim to fame were in the late 1800s, very early 20th century. So anybody in the know was already well aware of what H.G. Wells was pushing. And I guess Disney was just okay with that. Right. Well, you know, the, the utopian dream is just code words for the exact opposite. Um, you know, Disney took part 
ad nauseum in war propaganda. So here you're a person that's looking for the utopian dream that's beyond racism and war, yet you're going to help the very war machine that you're against. Um, there's the first problem. The second thing, from as far as what we're told about Disney, is we're told he was an anti-Semite. Um, I went back and forth on this for many years, much prior to this episode, trying to determine what's behind all that. Uh, even looking at the people who worked on his films and seeing so many German names and wondering what the real truth and basis for it was. But the idea that they're into some kind of utopian dream beyond racism and war is provably nonsensical. For Walt Disney and that company, they are so in bed with war propaganda that they can never be separated, even having the studios co-opted to some degree by the military at one point. And then again, there's no walking away from the racism that is announced openly to the public uh, in terms of Walt being an anti-Semite, supposedly. But then again, we have the name of Mickey Mouse as initially being Mortimer. And if I'm not confused, Mort is most often used in Jewish naming. Um, I would have to look more into that, but also, I guess while I'm at it, uh, clearly the, the word Mort could break down to death. But anyhow, I'm rambling, Jason. Go ahead. I didn't go specifically into the anti-Semite stuff because there there is no one single solid piece of evidence. My thoughts on it are this, and you can give me your take on this. Hollywood was founded from the very beginning by Jewish people. It is predominantly, although not 100%, run by Jewish people today. My thoughts would be that Disney had to deal with a lot of Jewish business people who were always trying to keep an upper hand on him as the stereotype generally goes, and he probably just got irritated dealing with it all the time. That would be my initial thoughts on being ticked off with Jewish people in general. Well, we can try to logically break it down. And again, I've gone at this a few times. And in some accounts, and even in some of the film reels that cover Disney, uh, they're kind of showing that he's like this new guy on the block, this up-and-comer. The other studios don't like him. He's separate from them. That's what's being portrayed. But we can look at other aspects of Disney. He had huge problems with the unionization uh, that is all over Hollywood. Um, There is not a portion of Hollywood, probably, that is not unionized from the Screen Actors Guild to any number of things. Uh, Walt tried to break unions and tried to keep an iron-fisted control over the people that work for him. And there's all all these newsreels. You can go back and look, even uh, Disney Studio coverage of the history that show how hurt Walt Disney was that his employees would unionize and went against him. Um, There's a whole movie that covers this, but it doesn't really tell us the truth, does it? Uh, On the one hand, we know that unions are predominantly all over Hollywood. Uh, And on the other hand, we can look at the people who worked on the Disney, uh, the early Disney works, so many being German names. I can't make heads nor tails out of whether he's actually an anti-Semite or whether this is just some kind of propaganda. But there are tells like how many German people worked on the film and the idea that Disney was going to be a studio that didn't allow unionization. But that's as close as I can come, Jason. In 1934... A test run for the soon-to-come Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is released, called The Goddess of Spring. I watched it, it was only ten minutes long, and there's lots of interesting symbology littered throughout. Now, I'd already seen other clips where lots of things that are occultish, devils and demons and things like that, seem to be a pretty common thing with Disney way back when. And, of course, we know that magic and all things to do with that are huge parts of the Disney film and, and their entire, just everything to do with them. They they always incorporate some form of magic in, in some way, shape, or form. Sometimes it's a, it's a very silly magic, like fairy godmothers, and sometimes it's these real dark demonic presences that are casting spells to hurt people. It seems like that was a thing right from the beginning. Well, there's no getting away from what you just read. You know, we're looking at the goddess of spring uh, as the the working idea behind Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, which ends up being a massive deal uh, for most of the world. Certainly in the United States, a massive, massive deal. Um, It was kind of a tectonic shift for America when that movie came out. But here we are. Um, This is the goddess of spring. These are the older alchemical ideas being encoded into it. And almost in any given Disney animation early on, nature is going to play a big 
big role. Um, and the idea of magic and alchemy, it's all wrapped up in here. And there are very few movies that you can point at early on that don't openly show these things. The problem is, is at this time in the history of America, most people aren't even aware that alchemy is a thing. But here I think we see another example of those elite from the upper crust circles being well-versed in the ideas of what I call alchemy, lacking any better descriptive term to describe the natural processes that bind us all and that are used so thoroughly by the powers that be. What I find interesting is that he's releasing these things in what would be considered a predominantly Christian nation. In 1934, everybody's good little Christians, at least on the surface, but he's putting out things with devils and demons and things. There's been a lot made out of this. Uh, A lot of people who follow Christian traditions made the argument um, that he was trying to separate America from these Christian ideas that it had been founded on. And again, I would invite anyone to go back and look at Fantasia. You don't need to be a genius to understand what you're being shown there. And many people who didn't take the religious angle when they were taking apart all these old conveyances, these movies that were put out to basically everyone, have shown that there are ideas being seeded out and kind of programming being done to the audience from the idea that your children are taught by talking animals, not sages, not smart people, but talking animals. These ideas will run all the way up to the Muppets teaching your kids how to speak. Um, the Tavistock, we've done, showed the research there where uh, the tenant of the idea of using talking animals to lower human consciousness uh, was bandied about and then kind of schematized to be implemented. And more so even is how uh, the the hero of any given animation back in the day wins. Um, it's not in a belief of something higher than himself. Often it's through some kind of a magical means and these other things. But these ideas would probably take up a show on their own, Jason. But people can look up where people, where, where uh, you know, other writers have gone at what was the purpose, the encoding into these movies. Let's get to the first really big one for Disney. 1937, the release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Disney's first full-length animated feature that was released by RKO Radio Pictures at the time. And we have discussed RKO before in regards to their radio ties and all the things they had to do with that. And that has military military ties, exactly. Production had begun in early 1934 with an original projected budget of $250,000, which was 10 times the amount for any of his animated shorts at that time. However, the film ended up costing over $1.4 million, which translates to approximately $25 million in today's terms. Walt was said to have mortgaged his house to pay for the production, and some odd symbolism could definitely be said to be found in this very first Disney film. This film would cement Disney as a Hollywood powerhouse from this point on, of course. Snow White made its debut on December 21st, 1937, at the Carthay Circle Theater in California. It was said to have made nearly $8 million by the end of its original run. Let's also not forget that this was in the time of the Great Depression and people were still going out in droves to see this film. It was called a tremendous critical success, of course, with many reviewers at the time hailing it as a genuine work of art recommended for both children and adults. Damn, there's a lot here, Jason. Um, And again, we see the alchemical ideas coming hard into play with the release of this, this kind of natural magic that seems to be so closely tied to much of, uh, much of what Hollywood does. But let's start by the release date, 1937. Let me count the ways once again. For anyone out there confused, I am letting the century marker stand as it is and using the decade marker uh, to use simple numerology, which is done in my view very, very often. But on top of that, you're saying there was a production budget of a quarter of a million when it ends up being a million point four. And we're told he pays for it by mortgaging his house. Well, back in 1937, you would have had to have one hell of a house uh, to be covering a $1.4 million debt. So that kind of rings hollow to me. But the main takeaway here is in 1937, let me count the ways it is released on the low point of the sun, the summer solstice, the allegory for hell. Uh, We've covered it so much recently, I don't feel like I need to say a lot more there, Jason. On September 29th of 1938, Walt Disney Enterprises, Disney Film Recording Company, Lillard Realty and Investment Company, and Walt Disney Productions Limited are merged to form 
Walt Disney Productions. In 1940, the studio moves to Burbank and the company goes public. The wheel turns. The clock turns. The things that need to happen on that clock happen when they should. And on September 29th, brothers and sisters, let me count the way. We got the official Walt Disney Productions. How many times do we need to count the ways here for the most skeptical of minds to begin to understand what is going on? Back to you, man. On February 7th, 1940, Disney releases Pinocchio. Initially, it was not considered a financial box office success because the box office returns from the film's initial release were both below Snow White's massive success and below the studio's expectations. Of the film's $2.289 million cost, twice the cost of Snow White, Disney only recouped $1 million by late 1940, with studio reports of the film's final original box office take varying between $1.4 million and $1.9 million. Animation historian Michael Barrier notes that Pinocchio returned rentals of less than $1 million by September 1940, and in its first public annual report, Walt Disney Productions charged off a $1 million loss to the film. Barrier relays that a 1947 Pinocchio balance sheet listed total receipts to the studio of $1,423,046.78. This was primarily due to the fact that World War II and its aftermath had cut off the European and Asian markets overseas and hindered the international success of Pinocchio and other Disney releases during the early and mid-1940s. RKO recorded a loss of $94,000 for the film. This is a strange thing, Jason, because, you know, I I was alive uh, during the period in the 60s when every now and again the Disney films would be re-released. They almost did it for each young generation or each group of young folks every periodically. I don't know what it was, every seven years or I'm just guessing. uh, They would release the big films and Pinocchio was one of them. I don't think there's a child uh, in in this country that isn't, you know, late 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s uh, that didn't go out like every other family to see Pinocchio. So the description that it didn't do well, um, whatever, I'll set that aside. But one strange thing about Pinocchio, because I actually went back and viewed it recently, like within the last year or so, um, it has a strange cadence and the artwork. And while most of it is really kind of Disney-esque, really interesting, vivid artwork, it almost seems like there's a few movies that were pulled together. Like all the things to do with the ocean seem like they were animated for a different feature. All the underwater scenes, it almost looks like a whole different group of designers that had nothing to do with the land-based Pinocchio created it. Um, I would invite people to go back, but to close out on this bullet point, I would suggest that maybe this is serving the war narrative where, look, man, we're at war, hard times, we can't release movies in other countries, so we're taking a beating just like everyone else. Uh, I would suggest that maybe that's the narrative we're looking at. Yeah. Now, the United States hadn't officially entered yet, but that was coming very soon. The idea was that the whole of Europe and Asia was all screwed up because of World War II and that where films would normally get released, they just weren't at that time. And what's interesting is that's considered very heavily today as well. You know, there's only the United States considered for the initial release, but they have massive figures taken into account for all the other markets. So it's interesting that even way back in this time period, that was a very prominent thing to have to be considered. Well, you have to consider another point. Movies worked for the Disney studios in a way different way than most other places that produced film because they were making what was called family-friendly entertainment. And things like Pinocchio were aimed at the kids, but the adults could go too. But you see, it wasn't just the initial year's release. Like now you're told, oh, this is the best film of the year. And you know now it's going to go to DVD. These films were re-released on a regular schedule over and and over and over. So I just, it feels a little disingenuous to me when you have a film where it's not the initial release year, you're going to release it again in whatever their schedule was, five, six, seven years, I have no idea. But it was regularly re-released to, to get the new batch of kids coming out into the world. And again, I would suggest there are very few kids in America um, that, that weren't exposed to Pinocchio, the film we're talking about, or Snow White, or any of these films. So it just, it rings a little hollow. And by the time you get down to... Uh, the association with RKO, you and I have shown flat out how as we rolled into World War II, RKO was completely militarized and it was never undone as far as we can tell. 
the re-release thing hadn't started yet. I'm actually going to get to that. I have a specific bullet point regarding that with Snow White because of the losses that they were incurring, and I'll get to that in a moment. But what's interesting is this is pre-television, obviously pre-rentals or anything like that. None of that stuff was going on. So you spent money on a movie, you released it, and it did what it did. There was really no merchandising to anything yet, although that's about to start up for Disney and all that. So they pioneered a lot of what went into making money for movies pretty much around the late 30s into the 40s, because this is way before the Mickey Mouse Club and Disneyland and any of that stuff would be uh, out there making Disney tons of money. Good point, Jason. And maybe I spoke too early because I really am not aware of when the re-release schedule started or what the period was. But by the time I was a young child, um, the Disney films would be released from time to time to time. And then, of course, I lived through the 80s when the video market starts up. So maybe I'll back off the statement I just made until you cover that point. Um, but here, up here next, we're into a very dark piece of, of uh, family entertainment, aren't we? Absolutely. On November 13th, 1940, Disney releases Fantasia with a cost of $2.28 million. This release would also lose money despite being thought of very highly in many circles, especially with reviewers. The problem was that of World War II going on in Europe again, restricting the release of the American films in certain nations involved. Now, they went above and beyond with this film. Uh, being a recording engineer, I actually looked at some of the ways they did the sound, and they put a lot, hundreds of thousands of dollars in 1940 dollars to... It wasn't 5.1 surround or anything like you would hear of today, but it was along those lines of stereoscopic where there'd be a right channel, a left channel, and a mono channel center so that the orchestration would be delivered in the theater in a way just never done before. So Disney really believed in whatever it was he was doing would push the envelope for whatever reason. I don't know if it was to bring movies to a more realistic level, if there was something more insidious behind it, I don't know. But from a point of view of a recording engineer, he was pioneering things at a very early time because things were still being released in mono all the way through the 60s. Right. So let me give you my take here. Uh, in my view, Fantasia, uh, the importance of the film from their perspective had nothing to do with the box office it was going to get. It was making an announcement. It was showing uh, it was the tip of the hand to show what they were about. Uh, I think that's what it's about wholly. And I would also point out simple things we can look at, like the, the release date on November 13. I mean, we're, we're talking about a country who doesn't even put 13th floors in buildings, right? Because 13 is unlucky. So the majority of the skyscrapers don't have a 13th floor. Well, where does this come from? Many would say it echoes back to Friday the 13th when the Knights Templar were all supposedly murdered, or many of them uh, by a French king. So you can see the encoded dates. Uh, 13 was always thought of as an unlucky number. But when you go back and look at this movie, um, I would make a bold statement here. If a movie similar to this with similar content was released today, uh, it would be called out as an occult practice and many religious institutions would be screaming from the rafters. When you go back and look at it, in my view, what you are looking at is the tip of the hand. Disney is showing you uh, the alchemical game it is playing, the insider royal circle game it is playing, and it announces the intent of what do Disney, the corporation, will be engaged in. Uh, with regard to how it's going to interact with the masses uh, through the life of the corporation. I think that's what's going on. And for my, my money, I don't think money was even a big deal. I think they wanted to do what they wanted to do, and they did it. Now, what's interesting with Fantasia is the very heavy uh, occult overtones. Obviously, we have the Sorcerer's Apprentice, where Mickey Mouse is a wizard, and he's animating things to life, so Christians do love to scream about that one. But the big thing is that the, the last piece is the devil. Satan. Uh, yeah, just <laughs> rising in, <laughs> in yep. devils and all that. We can make fun of Christians for not liking Mickey Mouse in a sorcerer's robe, but uh, there's no doubt whatsoever about what that last bit was about. Now, another thing that's uh, very interesting that I noticed, because I just watched parts of Fantasia again the other night, there's a lot of accusations about Walt Disney having some very odd sexual desires, but again, I couldn't prove it. But one of them was that he kind of had a fascination with the rear. And there's accusations that he was a pedophile, or that he liked boys and girls, he, he or he liked little boys and all that. But the one thing I can definitely say, towards the end of Fantasia, in the centaur scene, there's all these little fairies, or whatever you want to call them, who look like naked little boys with wings. And yes, quite often, their little high knees are stuck right at your face in the screen. 
it's not just this film. There are so many occasions um, in Disney still art and animation where you can show the kind of, you know, idea, the sexual idea being inserted into it. And on the face of it, the average person may say, so what? But sorry, you can't do that. This is being shown to the world as wholesome family entertainment. It's targeting all the kids of the world. And guess what? The parents can come to. There are sexual overtones. And uh, even even so far as what I've stated earlier, where there were penises put into the cover art uh, for things like, the, I think it was the Little Mermaid and the Lion King. Um, there's been ample work done to show that the smoke in a certain part of the film turns into the word of sex. This has been done over and over and over. And these are not quite Questionable things. So on the face of it, we see it for what it is. It's being billed as family entertainment, yet something else is going on here. But anyhow, Jason, that does bring us to the top of the first hour. Um, you want to get in a little bit about what we're going to cover in the second hour, because there is so much we're going to hit on. Well, the second hour, we can definitely talk about things that we can't on YouTube, especially what the holdings are, all these different properties. First thing is going to be the strike, which was a big deal in 1941. But we're going to get into towards the end all the different properties that Disney has gobbled up, and they are becoming a monstrosity as of 2018. They own so much intellectual property, and they just are not slowing down. People have no idea, and just to barely scratch the surface, they own all the Star Wars franchise. They own the Marvel Studios. Those are two of the biggest things going in the world. They just announced the other night uh, that Star Wars is the biggest film of the year. That's Disney, and it barely scratches the surface. You're looking at corporations getting to a size that is so immense where governments don't hold a candle to the power that can be brought to bear. And Jason and I have made the assertion on so many episodes that what we're looking at is the coming age when finally every major corporation merges into one overarching entity. If these assertions are correct that we have made and the path and the research we've done to try to show it, um, there's really no arguing about the timeline here. We're looking at people who played the long game, and I'm talking centuries long game. It's a bit hard to fathom, but anyhow, Jason, anything else you want to add before we close up the first hour and prep up for hour two, which should be a doozy? Well, I would like to add for this hour one, think about the massive social engineering implications there could be regarding just something like Star Wars. Disney owns Star Wars and are releasing films on a regular basis and will from this point on. I'm, as far as I know, they're going to try and release a Star Wars film every year from here to eternity. And think about the amount of people, the millions and millions and millions of people who are into this stuff. I saw the latest Star Wars movie, and man, it sucked. The storyline compared to the originals, it's obvious that this is being used for something else other than telling a good story because it was not a good story. And I'm not saying that as a whiny fan. I'm saying just dissecting it. It just wasn't very interesting. But goodness gracious, was there a lot of programming in there. So think about the fact that Disney is going to do this with this property and all the other properties that it's got control of. And how many people are going to go walking blindly into these theaters, be bombarded with this programming, and go talk about it on the internet ad nauseum, not even realizing what it was that they witnessed in the first place? Well, there's no arguing at this point, Jason. Data is king. Uh, data and messaging trump all other aspects of life to include cash uh, by a long shot and anything that will be exposed to millions and millions and millions of minds, whether it's a very popular TV show or a movie that ends up blockbuster status. The more minds that will be exposed to the content, the more programming that will be in it. We've demonstrated this time and time again. And even in this opening kind of sonata on Walt Disney, we had to stop and count the ways at almost every stop. The wheel is turning. The clock is spinning. The actors will come to the stage when they were required. They will play their required roles. We are looking at a long game here, and the end of this long game, in my view, is total domination of everything by one overarching entity. Anyhow, that brings us to the top of the hour for episode 89 of Crow 777 Radio Podcast. I hope to see you all over at Crow777Radio.com for the second hour. It's going to be a Lulu, and the fact remains, we often cover things in the second hour that would probably get us in a bit of trouble over here, though we do not censor the first hour. There it is, man. Cheers. Cheers. 